Blue Wire. To the end zone he goes. Where Sammy is. Boyd with a great fake. Touchdown, Taj. Hopkins throws to Boyd. Lean means touchdown throwing machine tonight, and he's got another one. Boyd. Welcome back to the Taj Boy Podcast. You know what week it is? Draft week. So you know we have to talk about the ins and outs because ball is life. Now joining me in this episode of the podcast is AJ Vaynerchuk. He's co-founder of Vayner Sports and the founder of Vayner Media. AJ is a lot of things. All right, he's a serial entrepreneur, big time investor, and a visionary. But in this podcast, we'll tackle, you like that, right? Some hot topics and you'll get an inside look into why he's had the success he's had and what drives him to be better every single day. AJ has jumped headfirst into the sports world, and after this episode, you'll know that this is just the beginning. All right, with multiple players being represented by Vanish Sports in the 2020 draft class, we'll hear AJ talk about his approach and the dialogue he has with his clients for the journey that lies ahead. If you haven't already, make sure you hit that subscribe button and rate it, will you? Here we go. Well, today I am joined by a very special guest, AJ Vaynerchuk from Vayner Sports, which was founded in 2016. Um, these guys are, are taking big strides in the agency business and at media space as well. And I'm so excited to have them on today because uh, we got a lot to discuss. AJ, thanks for jumping on the show. Yeah, Tosh. No, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate the invite. Of course, of course. Now, this is, this is unique. Um, you know, obviously... You know, you guys started um, about four or five years ago. Uh, you've been navigating through this journey as an agent um, this whole time, but this is the first time ever that the draft has been virtual. You know, what are you seeing um, that could be potential challenges from a communication standpoint, and how are you handling that with your clients right now? Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, for the most part, in, in regards to this virus and how it impacts the draft, I think the league, the players, the industry are lucky that it happened in 2020 and not, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I think that, uh, everybody's mentally prepared that there may be some hiccups, you know, the NFL, I know did a trial mock draft yesterday with all the teams and there was a bug or two, but overall nothing too major. Um, you know, for the most part with the players and my communication, you know, I can't be with every single client anyway. Uh, you know, when the draft is happening. So, you know, we, we've had experience and, it's nothing too monumental that we're overcoming. I think more than the draft process and the logistics itself, I think um, you know the pre-draft process has been very different in the sense sure. that uh, the vast majority of pro days were canceled, which is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And um, the vast majority of 30 visits where teams are allowed to bring up to 30 players for a private visit to headquarters and have them interview with a bunch of team, uh, team officials and have them uh, go through medical checks, things of that nature. And so I think this will be a year in which we'll see far less non-combine players drafted just because of the lack of medical information that teams will have. Um, And I guess the one instance where maybe things will get a little bit more chaotic due to the virtual nature of all this is the undrafted free agency portion where, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously the, the scouts and the coaches and the general manager and the rest of the executive team are not together at headquarters. And so there may be some, um, logistical issues and maybe some wires cross once the draft ends and undrafted free agency in the wild, wild west of that process endures. But, uh, you know, overall, I think the league is prepared. I think the teams are prepared. I think the agents and the players are prepared. Yeah. And it's, um, 
you know, you, you brought up something there. Um, I had a chance to go through pretty much the whole process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, finished up my last bowl game, went straight into training. From there, I went and uh, played in the senior bowl. I went to the combine. I had pro day. I had a chance to meet with some teams. Um, and so we were able to gather some data that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously in this particular draft, you know, there are surefire picks. There's, you know, the guys in the first round, there's the guys in the seconds. And those are, are, are picks that people are pretty sure about. But when you talk about guys that end up going into the later rounds, does that create more legwork for you as far as reaching out to these organizations, these scouts, these coaches to make sure that your guys get a fair shake? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's the case, whether, you know, we had this virtual off season right. or not. Um, you know, we have, we have a large class and, and a, the vast majority of them fall into that day three range. And so, um, yeah, I think there's additional legwork, uh, in some regards and, you know, there's pros and cons to every situation. Um, but I think it's one of those things where, you know, you, you work with the players to prepare them as much as possible for this situation. And, um, you obviously communicate with these teams and, and, you know, we're, we're getting calls, you know, in the, especially the week leading up to the draft for those day three guys where scouts and coaches are calling and just trying to, you know, do one of two things. They're either trying to get an understanding of where the player is ranked on other teams, draft boards, Mm -hmm. or they're trying to recruit um, a player for potential undrafted free agency. Right. So it's kind of this, you know, depending on where the team values the player, it, it falls into one of those two buckets. And, you know, our job is to kind of decipher which of those two conversations are we having in that moment and properly convey the information that gives our player the best opportunity. And something that, you know, I personally believe in, and it's a bit counterintuitive and certainly not the, the sexy sales pitch an agent wants to make. But, you know, what I try to convey to the guys that I'm lead on is, listen, I know it's your dream to get drafted. And the, right. the glitz and the glamour of getting drafted is uh, an emotional attachment that somebody's going to have and, and one a dream right. that they maybe had for 15 years, right? But what I tell these guys is, you know, when it comes to round six and seven in particular, there are countless examples around the league and within our own building where going undrafted and having the ability to have more of a choice as to your destination sure. and depth chart can be better than getting drafted in round six or seven. So an example of that is our guy, Kyle Allen, right? Kyle Allen, quarterback. uh, He went undrafted his draft year. We ultimately had him sign in Carolina where he was able to start a bunch of games and, you know, build a a relationship with that coaching staff and a trust with that coaching staff where now he's in Washington competing for a starting job. And had Kyle gotten drafted by the team that we thought was most likely to draft Kyle – he most likely would have not seen a single snap in his NFL career yet. hundred percent. Um, you know, and I, some, some guys ask me the same thing and I always share that same sentiment. I mean, if you're going to go that late, you're better off just trying to pick the best opportunity, try to pick the winner yep. out of particular organizations, teams that you might be familiar with from a playbook standpoint, yep. guys that might be on that team where you have some camaraderie, just a, a depth chart, depth chart 100%. structure. Some guys get drafted late to become, you know, camp bodies. And mm-hmm. so many people don't want to believe that. But right. when you talk about these players from a recruiting process too, that that's a tough conversation to have with yes. a player. Right? It's yeah. it's every kid thinks that they're 
you know, worthy of getting drafted higher than they do. You know, you got yeah. guys who get drafted number six overall and say, I should have been the number one draft pick. Yeah. So when you talk about a kid that's going late and you explain that to him, how does that work from the player you know, standpoint or from the parent standpoint? That's not really a conversation I'm having in December or January. That's more of a conversation I'm having last week and this week, right, heading yeah. into the draft. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a big believer that especially before any of this pre-draft process has started, you know, if we're if you're all these all these kids are making their decisions in uh, you know December or let me phrase they're not making their but they're making their choices and they're signing their paperwork in sure. December and January, and you know at that point when when I'm asked what's your draft stock, I my my belief and it's the truth is I'm never going to put a ceiling on a man's potential because I've sure. seen already you know and I've I've been in a meeting where I told a kid based on the NFL you know. Talked to all 32 teams, and they all gave me, as an example, they all gave me feedback that you're going to go somewhere between picks 20 and 40. And I said right. that to the kid, and he he didn't love it, I don't think, and I respect that. And he ended up going top 10. And so to that point, I, mm. I, from that moment on, when I saw him go top 10 at that draft you know, a few months later, I said, you know what? Screw this. I don't care if every single team tells me you know, he's going to go <laughs> second round. If this right. kid goes out and dominates the pre-draft process, has a great combine and kills the interviews and is balls out in the practice sessions at the senior bowl or the East West shrine, whatever um, their draft stock can change. And so what I, what I tend to tell guys is, is listen, when they ask that question, I lead with the idea of, you know, of that story and that anecdote where I've had plenty of examples where a player was ranked a certain way in December and outperformed that rank. And then I've had right. examples of the vice versa because maybe the player, you know, not for me personally, but around the league, maybe the player didn't take the pre-draft process as seriously as they need to, or they interviewed terribly, or they dropped the ball on the one-on-one practices at the All-Star game, things of that nature. So I give them a range and tell them that ultimately a very large percentage of what ends up happening rests on your shoulders and how well you perform from here on sure. out. Well, that's that's honest dialogue in a not so honest industry. You know, yes. To be completely honest, and, and yeah. you know that well. So, you know, as far as that goes, I mean, when you're for the people that don't necessarily know, what is it that you're trying to accomplish when you're picking a particular player? Do you want them to fit the brand that you guys are building itself in Vayner Sports, or are you trying to find the best pick available? It, it's very much the former, and and to your point. Because we have this type of honest dialogue and that approach, we're going to miss out on a lot of guys. Sure, and sure, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that because I, I, I truly believe that it, it makes it self-selecting in a matter, right? And so when, when a player and a young man decides to sign with me or our agency after experiencing that honest dialogue, I know that this is somebody that I can work with for the duration of their NFL career and after their career is done because they understand right. – the realities of the landscape. They understand how much of this is actually in their hands and how much we're going to do every single thing in our way to support and influence their outcome and their journey. But we also want guys that are dealing with reality. And so, you know, the kids that decided not to go with Vayner sports and, and go with me as their agent, because they didn't like the, the honesty or the transparency or the realistic uh, approach. Um, it probably wouldn't have worked out anyway. And yeah. so, it's, it's not to say that we're trying to find kids that fit what we want. It's more, like I said, self-selecting where we, we have our approach and our belief. And I think that we recruit more than we sign. 
But I think that, that what ends up happening is that those that sign with us ultimately, you know, it becomes clear that they were the right fit for what we're trying to do. And we are the right fit for one another. And it's such, I mean, you guys are in such a unique space. One, because you're in New York, obviously, right? You're in the Mecca of yep. business in sport and out of sport. All right. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other angle where, you know, you guys have VaynerMedia. Mm-hmm. All right. And so that extra step that most guys don't necessarily understand because, you know, when I was, for example, when I was going through the recruiting process, draft process, mm-hmm. you know, I had agents come in and I mean, I talked to, I mean, you'd name them. I probably talked to them. Right. Right. When you had one guy come in and say, Hey, well, you know, this is, you know, a marketing guy. He did X, Y, Z for, you know, this hall of flame sure. player, you know? And I'm like, okay, that sounds good. But what is he going to do for me? Okay? Right. Because yep. it's a different deal here. All right. I'm yep. not him. He's not me. So yep. I need you to tailor out something that makes sense there. And, and obviously I know some of the players that are signed with, with you, you guys. Mm-hmm. And I know some of the things that they've been able to build, you know, after football is over with. And, and right. I think that it's pretty special. So how much does Vayner media play into Vayner sports and how much can you tie that into your recruiting process? Yeah. You know, I think Vayner media obviously can play a big role and there yeah. are instances where the two companies have opportunities that make sense for one another and they collaborate. But what ultimately ends up happening is it's a little bit less Vayner media and a little bit more the Vaynerchuk ecosystem where Gary and I and our background, our network, our experience, and our insight is the larger influence on kind of how we support Vayner Sports and our clients. Mm-hmm. Um, just because transparently, and we're, we're building towards it and we're starting to be able to chip away at it, but a lot of our clients on the Vayner Media and Vayner X side of things are of a certain size where only a handful of football players make sense for them to collaborate, right? So sure. Chase Bank is not going to be endorsing and spending the type of money they spend on an endorsement with more than a handful of NFL players. And so, um, yes, we're able to tap into those resources. And I think the IP that we develop, and I think where it probably ends up being more beneficial to the Vayner sports clients is the Vaynerchuk network and ecosystem of what my brother has, uh, what we have built together and and just the multiple worlds that we have our hands in. Sure, sure. And I, I really want to know, because you started Vayner Sports when you were, what, 29, 30 years old? Yep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously you were involved in different industry before, you know, you, you've invested, you, you know, you've built, yep. um, you've collaborated. But why why sports? Why football? Why tap into that space? What was it about it that you wanted to get into? Primarily passion. Uh, yeah. You know, for me, it was this background of, being a diehard sports fan. And unfortunately for me, um, you know, the Jets and Knicks, those two teams haven't given me all the greatest moments over these last 20, 25 (laughs) years. But, um, you know, it it definitely started with the passion and and the interest in sports. Um, You know, my two biggest passions are sports and business. So this landscape is the intersection of those two things. Mm -hmm. And then I I would say a big inspiration for it, and you you just mentioned it, um, investing is another part of my background. And investing in early stage tech companies and had the good fortune and luck and timing and execution to be an early investor in things like Uber and Venmo and later on things like Snapchat and Coinbase. And so through that investment activity, uh, we were able to cross paths with a lot of athletes before Vayner Sports opened up. 
and through yep. my conversations with these athletes that were you know very far along in their career and very successful and had their own brands and had a real interest in tech i was able to see that this was going to become a bigger and bigger deal to athletes and i just thought that my experience as a businessman my experience as an investor and then ultimately vayner media being a service based business you know being able to easily translate a lot of the things that made vayner media successful into an athlete representation firm sure. Uh, made me see an opportunity. And then I guess pair that with the early diligence I did where I had a hard time recognizing what really differentiated a lot of these agencies from one another outside of their client lists. And mm -hmm. I just thought there was an opportunity to attack at the same time. Uh, I love that, man. And from a from a psychological standpoint, having setbacks in business, succeeding in business, has that prepared you and groomed you for everything that's happened in the agency space? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, when when you look at my seven years starting VaynerMedia with Gary, um, yeah. even though it was only seven years, taking a company from just the two of us to 600 plus people when I left and over 100 clients ranging, you know, Fortune 100 and higher. Right. Those seven years might as well have been 30 years of experience, right? We changed offices eight times. We opened up offices in LA and Tennessee and London and Singapore. And so even though it was a short period of time, it was this crash course of a massive amount of experience. And even though VaynerMedia had a ton of success, there was also a ton of failure along the way. And so, yeah, I think that um, that intense growth and also the multitasking of not only growing the media business, but opening up new divisions and new business opportunities, starting up and doing a ton of investing. You know, I've done over a hundred investments in my career in the private yeah. sector. Um, just having touched all these different sectors and tasting success and failure along the way. And, and having also a tangential understanding of what happened in the world of, of sports and business and athlete representation. Um, I think I was very prepared to dive in. Absolutely. I'll tell you what, because I, I want to understand, like, you know, your family background a little bit, too. I mean, I listen sure. to, to Gary um, every now and then, too. But I mean, obviously, you guys have this insatiable hunger, this desire, um, mm -hmm. you know, and it's it's so intriguing because you got two types of people, right? You got people that just let life happen to them and then you got people mm -hmm. that attack every single right. day. And yep. so where does that come from? Yeah, I mean, I love that question. I appreciate you asking it. I think ultimately... I credit a lot of that mindset to our parents. You know, my yeah. mom and dad fled the former Soviet Union in the late 70s when Gary was three years old and I wasn't even a thought in their mind, right? And so right. they came to America um, in the late 70s. Shortly after arriving, they actually had my sister. Um, and so my mom and dad, here they are. They're age 24, 25 and 23, and they're in America with a three-year-old and a newborn and no money and no language, right? Mm. And so that, that foundation – and what was interesting for me growing up is my, my childhood really transparently lived in a few different uh, classes of wealth. I kind of was born into the – uh, call it, you know, by the time I was born, my family had already gotten out of poverty. You know, when yeah. my dad and mom showed up, they shared a studio apartment with five other relatives. 
Like you're talking about seven adults and two or three kids. I can't, I can't remember if there was another child along with my brother and my sister from another family member talking about seven adults and two kids under three years old sharing a studio in Queens in the late seventies. Right. So that's, (laughs) that's poor. And, but to my dad's credit, you know, my mom stayed at home with the kids. My dad always wanted my mom to be able to be with the kids. So she never uh, worked a nine to five or anything like that. She was a full-time mom, even when they were dead broke. And my dad worked three different jobs and just 20 hours a day. Like my dad literally, even when we were starting VaynerMedia that first year and I'm 22, fresh out of school, working a hundred plus hours a week, I couldn't even bring up being tired around my dad. My dad looked at me, he's like, at your age, I had kids. I was working just as hard, if not more. And you're on a computer all day. And I was driving taxis, working construction. Like, so hard work, the hardest of hard work was looked at as a cousin of lazy in comparison to what my dad did in his early mm-hmm. years in this yeah. country. And so my, my, my growing up and my childhood started in this you know, lower middle class and then middle class and then upper middle class. I kind of, my, you know, 10 years, call it from eight to 18 of consciousness, experienced this ascension of, of stability and financial security. And it was really intriguing. And I, I think a very unique uh, growing up process Can not only, you know, by the time I went off to college, I was very fortunate, and very lucky that, you know, my dad was doing well for himself. And my brother, uh, being 11 years older, was always also doing very well for himself in his career. And, um, you know, I, I got to see this firsthand and, but it was also still anchored by this immigrant mentality. You know, my mom and my dad are are extremely financially secure, but they don't act like it. And they always say that they, they just can't forget where they came from. You know, no matter how much they want to shake it, they're still going to be extra frugal because they spent years and years of, you know, my sister's first crib was pulled off the street corner and, you know, was left for trash. And that was my, you know what I mean? Her first car seat, same thing. And so, um, that's an experience that I'll never leave them. And I think that's, I'm very blessed that they were able to instill all that, um, along the way. But I also got to, you know, representation is extremely important. I think representation is that it's most important when it comes to, you know, the examples of minority, uh, role models for, um, the example of success and opportunity. Right. So I always love, you know, a great example is just, the superhero movies, right? And having right. the movies have more minority leads and minority superheroes for minorities to aspire to. But for me, you know, secondarily having the good fortune of being, you know, white and and not having to face those same challenges that a lot of minorities face, but the the role model and the example of my dad being dirt poor and then being right. super successful and having lived throughout that coast to coast, right. um, I think made me have a greater sense of belief that I could accomplish it, but was also anchored with this work ethic and hunger and, and go get it nature. Yeah. I mean, it's uh it's a, a true Testament of the American dream, right? A hundred percent. A couple of things. It's, you know, you are what you think about and it's also, you are what you're surrounded by. And if you're Absolutely. surrounded by that mentality and that approach, then that trickles into everything else and everybody else that you're surrounded by. And so you know, I, I think the cool part about you being able to sit back and, and look at that in its full spectrum is that it gives you a sense of realness when you're having conversation with people. You know, mm-hmm. most people, I mean, they go through life and they don't they aren't cognizant of their surroundings, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yes, so very much so. Really, they can't really weed out what's real and what's not. 
And so, you know, when you look at a guy that you guys represent, Cal Allen, right? This kid is has 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 been battle tested. He's been heartened. He's 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 thrown. He's fought through everything, right? And so, you can't yeah. tell him that he's not going to be successful. But it almost sounds like he's perfect for what Vander Sports is, right? And so, when you're recruiting these players, you know, it has to mean something when you d- dig a little bit deeper and figure out who these kids are at its core to try and find some symbiotes of of are these guys going to be successful or not based off of their um, mental makeup and not just on the field, but off the field as well. Yeah. Well, you know, Kyle's such an interesting story in that regard because, you know, Kyle was the number one pro style high school quarterback in the nation going into college. Right. Right. And so he had this, uh, when he was going through his pre-draft process and ultimately landed on the Panthers and their practice squad and then being cut and brought back and then winning the backup job and starting all these games, what always made Kyle really fascinating to me is that, you know, you knew deep down that he had the talent it, to be an yeah. NFL starter, right? And then his college career, you know, he's not one to make excuses, but if you dig into his college career, he faced a lot of adversity and a lot of things that were outside of his control that impacted the ultimate result. And, sure. and what's interesting is going in and being a young quarterback, you know, this was his second year, but it effectively his rookie year in a lot of ways in terms of playing time. He's somebody that experienced so much more than your typical second-year quarterback as far as adversity and challenges and overcoming those things. So when he does face adversity in the NFL, which everybody does, no matter how good you are. I mean, Peyton Manning set the record for interceptions his rookie year, right? When you face adversity in the early parts of your NFL career, I always felt that he was more prepared than most, especially when compared to another five-star that just coasted and dominated college football and played at a dominant program. And then when they showed up the NFL – and they struggle, they don't know how to handle it. Kyle don't know did. how to feel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't know what it looks like. Exactly. Well, and you and you got Steven Montez, who to me, and you know, I do a lot of, uh, of breaking down of some of these quarterbacks and watching them. Kid from Colorado, right? It's a big yep. kid, you know, 6'4, 6'5, probably a little bit plus 230. I mean, this kid is a giant, you know. And big he kid. has like, he has games where it looks like everything's not there. And then there are some games where it just looks completely put together. Mm-hmm. And so from a preparation standpoint, you know, what do you see from him that you believe is going to translate to the next level? And, and yeah. really, I think he's underappreciated, right? I think he's underrated. And this is a unique draft class. Yeah. Altogether yeah, because I, some I games think... pick based off of need or based off of once right. and it becomes this whole deal. But yeah, you know. I think, um, you know, to a little bit of a similar point to Kyle in the sense that I think Steven is more prepared for the ups and downs and the challenges that the NFL is going to provide than a lot of the other quarterbacks in this class. Not to say that those other guys aren't as prepared as they can be, but the point I made about Kyle is that there's certain aspects that one faces that's outside of their control and they need to learn how to deal with that. And some guys have just had, you know, comfortable systems and consistency to grow under where Stevens had three different offenses in three different years. Yeah. That's, and I think that's a major factor that I think to your point about the underappreciation, I think a lot of uh, the media and the fans um, look at some of the inconsistent results from Steven. And, and again, I, I'm not one to make excuses, but this is a reality um, that I think a lot of NFL teams are, are more understanding of and more believe in is that, you know, there's a big difference between having to run three different systems over three years versus having the same system all three years in a row, right? Different yeah. offensive coordinator, different head coaches, the lack of stability that 
um, Stephen faced, I think, was a mirror to some of the inconsistent results. And so I, I'm looking forward for Stephen hopefully having some um, better fortune in terms of consistency at the NFL level because I really think if he's given the opportunity to sink his teeth into um, a playbook and a system and a staff and teammates, I think the growth that can be unlocked uh, is something that's intriguing a lot of NFL teams. Well, he definitely learned how to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations. Exactly, sure. exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Well, look, um, if you had, do you got a personal philosophy that you live by? I do. Um, well, I've got a lot. You know, I think that's kind of an interesting part. And you mentioned it before. I pride myself in being very um, introspective and cognizant of my emotions and my environment. Um, right. When it comes to my personal philosophy, it's just perspective being the most important word in the world where I'm constantly challenging myself and trying to take a step back and almost having an outer body experience and analyzing my circumstance where if I'm ever feeling a certain type of way about a situation, I try to take a step back and understand, okay, you know, how big of a problem is this thing really? And you got to really take into account how fortunate you are. And so one example of that was, you know, I think it's inevitable in this world of quarantine with the coronavirus for somebody to have a bad day, right? And that's okay. Yeah. I'm not saying you're not allowed to have bad days, but when I have a bad day and I get frustrated about being stuck inside the house, I just instantly kind of say, wait a minute, take a step back, man. You're, you're so lucky. Nobody mm. in your immediate family has been impacted negatively from this virus. Your whole family's right. healthy. Uh, you're financially secure. You know, There's millions of Americans losing their jobs on a weekly basis. You're not. And so if I'm, yeah, do I have a little bit of cabin fever? Well, shoot, man. There's, right. there's tens of millions of people in our country right now that would sign up for cabin fever this second. And so, um, you know, I think perspective from a human and personal level and then from a work perspective, my philosophy for Vayner and, and building this thing is that I can do well by doing good. My true belief is that if I run a very honest and very successful and just deliver great work both on and off the field for our clients year in, year out, and take comfort that I'm going to miss out on the quote-unquote higher-rated draft picks because I'm not going to play some of the games that the industry right. requires to, to secure those players' services. Right. Um, eventually, in the long term, big picture, 10, 15 years down the line, our business is just going to be absolutely through the roof because of the reputation and the case studies and the results and the belief and just trusting the process aspect of it. And it's centered around no shortcuts, only serving in the best interest of our clients and allowing it to work out in the long run. Mm. That's good stuff right there, man. And the fact that you practice gratitude every day tells me a lot. So I'm thankful for that. Well, I can't, I can't end on anything better than that. I'm <laughs> trying to keep it under 30, man. Uh, I look, I love, I love some of these, these bigger broadcasts and these podcasts, but man, I can't listen to three hours of it. So, right. You know? Well, Hey, can I ask you a question? Can I just up, the table and flip the script? So like I mentioned before, diehard Jeff fan, right? Yeah. I, I remember vividly, uh, you know, your draft year and that draft class and right. um, question as comfortable as you are answering it, favorite story from, you know, first joining the jets and, you know, that's, I believe Rex Ryan's the coach of that team. And so, yeah. you know, he's a character in himself. And there was a bunch of characters in that, uh, on that roster. So I'm just curious if you have a story that you haven't shared yet that you feel comfortable sharing in regards to your uh, tenure with the Jets. All right. So 
we had these installs and, and what's crazy right now is the adaptation of of what's happening in the NFL space, right? This collegiate transition from, you know, what the system was and this RPO yep. concept into this old regime of what the NFL once was, right? This right. understudy Bill Walsh, this whole deal. And, you know, Marty would just give us these plays that didn't make sense. You know, he would say, you know, these are, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I can remember one vivid play because, I mean, I was stressed out, man, like sweating, palms itching over here. I'm like, I don't understand what you're talking about. So he gives me the play in my headset one time. You know, we don't have a risk card or anything. He tells me to go call it in the huddle. And so mm-hmm. I got Nick Mango sitting there, mm-hmm. however many time pro bowler, this whole deal. Right, right. And the play, I remember it as it's shift to halfback, twin right open, two jet, scat slam, all go special, eagle shallow cross. Now, That's he gives a lot it to of me. One, a lot of verbiage, right? He gives it to me one time, and I start off and I say, shift. And I stop because I don't remember anything else that he said, you know? Mm-hmm. And he walks a little bit closer to me, Marty does. Mm-hmm. And he's like, shift two. And I'm like, shift two, halfback. And I look at him again, and next thing you know, he's just going berserk, bro. He's yeah. screaming. You know, Nick Mann goes mm-hmm. like, hey, spit the damn play out. You know, I'm like, damn, you know? And yeah. so, I eventually call it, and then I get to the line of scrimmage, and I forget what I called, you know? And so yeah, – just, just nervous I'm, and overwhelmed, right? And I'm like, damn, dog, who got wet on this concept? I'm like, whatever, bro. Whoever's going deep, I'm throwing it up, and they better catch it, you know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> but um, the same play at Clemson literally was Trey Wright, Florida 9. That was it. Four same words. Play. Trey Wright, Florida 9. Now shift the halfback, turn right open, two jets, scat slam. I'll go special eagle, shallow cross, man. But you know um. That's a great story in the sense that I find in my industry, the athlete representation side, I find a lot of agents try to pull the morning wag right. when it's really the Clemson, right? They they it make it, they make it seem like what we do for a living is the highest level of intelligence and security and importance. And if you don't choose them, you'll never have an NFL career. Exactly. Whereas it honestly comes down to a lot more of the simple truths and the simple concepts and the competency of the agent. And then at the end of the day, you're the one putting the football on at practice. You're the one putting the fo- the helmet on, on Sundays. And so I, I think that's just a great analogy where, especially in the pre-draft process, these agents, they have been through it time and time and time again, whereas the player and their families, 95 out of hundred times, this is their first go around. And right. so it's just a situation where I think that's just really interesting where sometimes I think people are so there's maybe so much ego in this business in every regard that, that there's a a inherent need in their mind to make it that much smarter and more complicated where really the best route is maybe it's just four words instead of 14. Right. Well, and they, you know, they want to, the NFL itself is this, this ideal of superiority. Yes. Right? And if you can't adapt to their language and they're not willing to conform for you. But what we're starting to see is that, you know, from it's like dropping back from under center. If yep. you go to any little league games, middle school games, I would bet to say about 95 percent of the teams that play all playing shotgun. The other teams yep. that don't are playing in the wing T triple option. Right. Right. So so the fact that, you know, you're forced to 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 do something that you're not comfortable with. It's, it's mind-boggling because the idea of this is to, to create success, right? To create yeah. ease of stress of burden for these players to go and perform at a high level. Yep. But you know, if you got to think about every throw you make because yep. you can't understand the language, then that makes everything a little bit 
I think you're, I think thankfully you're seeing some guys, you know, and you brought like Cliff Kingsbury coming in and I just think there's a, it's not all the way there, but you're definitely seeing more and more influences to make the transition sure. from college to pro easier. So that's good and positive. Well, and you give like, you know, Marty ended up being uh, the OC at the Ravens for a time. Mm-hmm. And I think if he was still there, then Lamar Jackson wouldn't necessarily have the success that he has to be completely. Yeah. Honest. I mean, you look at what Baltimore did from a coaching perspective and front office perspective. Rather than right. saying, hey, Lamar, we drafted you in the first round, figure it out, right? right? It's let's set this guy up to be successful. Let's exactly. let's emphasize his strengths and let's win football games rather than saying he needs to fit inside this box. For sure. And, you know, like my, my situation with the Jets was so unique simply because, you know, I've never been one of these guys that figures it out as soon as I get there, right? I need like mm-hmm. a little bit of time to understand the surroundings, to really adapt sure. and grow. And obviously that's not always – you know, the situation, you know, it's not always mm-hmm. going to be convenient like that, but right. Right. You know, I'm coming into a situation where if they don't win right now, then the whole staff is getting fired. And, and essentially right. they all did it, right from, from John is yep. down. Everybody got let go. Yep. And so yep. the fact that I couldn't help them be successful right away, mainly because I couldn't understand the language was, was a blow for me, man. And, and it's so crazy. I do a lot of keynote now and I talk about the experiences and I thought I understood, you know, adversity. I thought that I understood failure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But me getting cut that first time did something to me that I never thought it would, and it broke yeah. me. All right, mm-hmm. and so I went and second guessed everything that I've ever done, every accomplishment, every record, every yeah. throw. I'm like, damn, have I ever? Have I, was I always just okay? Have I ever been good enough? You know, right. And so what it does is a trickle effect. You let one loss beat you twice, and so you know now when I look at guys and I have these conversations, you know, to understand that it is just a part of the process. Right. You know, there's a part of the growth pattern. Like you really got to understand that you're not there by mistake. Right? You're there right. for a purpose. But the moment that you succumb to, you know, those thought streams, man, is the moment that you lose it. You can't ever let yourself get there. So, yeah, no, I love that. That's great. That's a great lesson, man, for sure. Awesome. And so for all of these kids coming into it, man, like, again, this is unique because a lot of these kids didn't get a chance to go to pro day. They didn't get a chance to work out right. in front of these teams. And so now, they're going to have to try to get the opportunity to go to rookie minicamp and make the most out of it. But you when can't, rookie you know, minicamp. we don't uh, have a exactly. rookie minicamp. <laughs> and that's, what, you know, it's so that's another, another part of the hill that they have to climb. Yeah. And so it's just, it's, it's unique. Yes. Um, but, you know, hopefully these guys understand that everything that they've done in sports is going to help them uh, in their transition to life going forward. Right. Too. But not right now. Like right now it's your right. job to go play ball. So have right. fun with it and enjoy it. Yep. And do what you do. Yep. But you know, awesome. and from an agency standpoint, man, just kick, just keep kicking out truth. You know, this is a it's a tough that. industry that we're in. It's very competitive, and I got yep. a couple friends, with agents, man, and they're just trying to figure it out, man. You know, a lot of pressure from everybody, but look, you know, it's all gonna work itself out. You know, no doubt, no doubt. I appreciate you, bro. Well, I appreciate you, man. Thanks for jumping on the pod. Uh, look forward. I still got to come out to New York to come see you, man. Yep. When all things settle down. <laughs> exactly. I'll be up there, big guy. All right. Sounds good. Appreciate you, Tosh. Appreciate you, AJ.